up, nerds? This is In My Expert Opinion, a podcast about the nonfiction side of speculative fiction. Your hosts are Dr. Marcus Cole. I get paid to do science. Sarah Ward. I'm a scientist in progress. And me, Abby Cole. I'm not a scientist at all. Join us as we geek out about the made-up stuff we love and the real stuff that shaped it. Today, we're going to be talking about 100 Years of Solitude, Magical Realism, and U.S. Interference in Latin America. Woof. Specifically, Banana Republics. Just keeping it light. Yeah, really. really (laughs) Yeah, keeping it light. Uh, Yeah, I I did want to lead with that uh, that caveat. It is probably going to be a little bit heavier than some of our other episodes, but it's interesting stuff and it's important stuff uh, because... It's good to know about history. Very true. (laughs) In my opinion. Yeah, and it's all like, I mean, you can't really talk about magical realism without talking about like this political stuff, right? Yeah. You can. Pretty much not. You can, but you shouldn't. Yeah, that's Um, (laughs) right. This topic was suggested by one of our listeners, Kara. Thank you, Kara. Thanks, Kara. Kara won our little giveaway thing and suggested we talk about magical realism. And uh, we picked 100 Years of Solitude because it's rad. We already talked about it once when I discovered it was a book. <laughs> yeah, so I briefly mentioned it. I think that was episode one, wasn't it? It was episode one. You said it, and I was like, I I mean, I had never heard of it before. Yeah. For those of you who have read 100 Years of Solitude, we already talked about alchemy. We're not going to talk about alchemy today. It's a big part of 100 Years of Solitude, but we're not talking about that. Uh, Yeah. So magical realism, guys. Yeah. Yes. What's your familiarity levels with magical realism? Uh, Like comic book stuff and fantasy and real world settings kind of i just recently learned that magical realism was an urban fantasy so that's where i'm at (laughs) yeah so magical realism is a literary genre that i think i kind of get the sense that the way it's used in sort of everyday pop culture type of stuff is a little bit different from how uh it's like discussed in literature Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm which is fine. Like people can use different words to mean different things in different contexts. I'm not going to sit here and be pedantic about it. But I think that the sort of original idea of it is a little bit different from the pop culture notion. That's fair. I mean, I don't, I literally have never taken a literature class. So that would explain why I didn't really know what it was in that context. Uh, Yeah, same here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, uh, I've gotten through a chunk of magical realism (laughs) in my day. Yes, having studied Hispanic studies and comparative literature, I don't know that I could have escaped it without this. That's fair. Yeah, because it is, as we'll talk about in a minute here, a like hugely Latin American thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, magical realism is like realistic fiction with fantastical elements that are presented as realistic uh, or factual or sort of integrated into the reality of the world. So in other words, magical things that happen aren't actually like magic. They're not constructed as quote-unquote magic in the way they would be in fantasy right like if someone's doing something you wouldn't be like that's a wizard it would just be like that's a guy and also he's doing this thing just got to deal with it yeah it's like oh there's just weird things going around with no explanation you just got to deal with it man (laughs) oh my god that resignation to it is actually i think a really apt (laughs) <laughs> resignation yeah the way, right. the way characters interact with it sometimes i feel like is is can be with a, a resignation hmm. yeah interesting <laughs> well i guess like the other little bit because 
I did I did do some prep before <laughs> we recorded. Mm-hmm. It's like I guess a part of the like magical realism is that you can have these absurdities or these fantasies in the literature, whatever media you're expressing this through. But it's like, I guess, aided by the contrast of like, the realism is so absurd that like, this fantasy is like crazy, but like also like the dynamics under which like the people in this world are living under realistically is even more absurd than like the idea of like, alchemy or Mm. anything other like magical concepts you would bring into it. Interesting. I don't know if I totally agree with there being that much of a distinction. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I see that makes sense to me as a way of looking at it, certainly. I don't know if I would agree there's that much of a distinction between what counts as fantastical and what doesn't. Um, This sort of this, one of the characteristics of uh, magical realism is this sort of notion of hybridity, which is that like multiple realities or like they can coexist at once, basically. Like there's an integration of what's imagined and real. Mm -hmm. So I would say like the idea that you could kind of separate it out and be like, surreal stuff is crazy but their real lives are crazier is kind of like uh, i don't know that you can separate them out that well that would be my my take on it anyway i am there are a million takes (laughs) on all of this yeah no that's fair (laughs) totally fine (laughs) it's not i'm not this is not a is this not the hill you're gonna die on you're not you're not just gonna this is what my no not this one (laughs) i have a hill i'm gonna die on later oh later i'm saving a hill for later (laughs) i'm gonna save a hill for later anyway uh, yeah, so hybridity is one of these characteristics of magical realism. Other characteristics include this idea of defamiliarization. So, like, the reader's going through and uh, your attention is drawn to things that aren't strictly realistic. So, it's like, oh, what's that? And by something being unfamiliar, it draws your attention to it. And that sort of affects your reading experience and the meaning you take away from mm-hmm. it. There's also this concept of authorial reticence, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> which which is to say like the author refuses to clarify what's real or what's not or the reasons for things not being fully realistic or not. It's like, yeah, not like, and here's my system for how the magic works and here's the reason for it and here's why it's cool. <laughs> it's like just fully like, no, I'm not going to talk to you about this. This is what's happening. Figure it out yourself, guys. She turned into a bunch of butterflies, and now she's gone. Uh, deal with it. Just draws a nice, very clear line between, like, fiction and, like, comic book lore. Is like, we have so much structure, and here's, like, why this person has these powers, and what they can do, and, like, all the rules, and their power factor. It's like, nope, you're not getting any of that. Joke's on you, I don't fucking care. <laughs> that is actually a really good point, because I've been trying to put my finger on, like, the reason that I, I couldn't really quite figure out why I didn't feel like superhero-type comic stuff would really fit into this. Besides it being a, a genre that's, well, sort of post-colonial in nature. Not that there aren't post-colonial comics or whatever, but, like, I think that lack of reticence might be the biggest thing that's different now yeah. that I'm thinking about it. That makes sense. Yeah. We discovered it here. We did it here on In My Expert. <laughs> you did it, Marcus. <laughs> we did it, guys. We cracked the case. Marcus, Marcus figured it, it out. <laughs> <laughs> Actually... Honestly, if anybody was going to figure out the difference, I feel like you have enough of a handle on comics that it was going to be you. Our comic expert. You just needed me as a catalyst. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, another characteristic that is in comics, actually, uh, is this sort of metafiction thing, which is this self-awareness, like an an awareness that it's literature. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The author will either make reference to that or include it in the structure of the book or have it 
be an event that's uh, related. Like the end of A Hundred Years of Solitude ends with like one of the characters like reading the book that oh, they're really? in and then the whole world disintegrates and the book is over. Oh, what? Oh, that's like um The Outsiders. Okay, not the disintegration part. That's kind of fucking crazy. Oh, The Outsiders. <laughs> that's, isn't that how The Outsider ends? He's yeah. like, actually, it was the essay I wrote in my English class because I needed to pass. What? Yes. I've read not. Yeah, have you never no, read The Outsiders? I've read, I, well, now I'm going to read both of these books because these endings sound amazing. Well, really yeah, definitely for sure. I mean, Okay, listen, The Outsiders actually is very good. The author is like mega homophobic. Yeah. But the book itself is quite good. The movie was like fun, if I recall correctly. Oh and my it God, does the movie's so it. fucking fun. No, 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 wait. Yeah, the movie's very good. Anyway, but like it does end with him being like, actually, this is my essay that I'm writing about. <laughs> I wouldn't define it as magical realism, but that part is. I can't, <laughs> that no. part is a, a similarity. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a metafiction type thing. We got to take a detour for uh, me to plug The Outsiders movie. It has baby Patrick Swayze and baby Tom Cruise and baby Emilio Estevez and baby Rob Lowe. And they're all like little babies, like acting in movies for the first time. And it's so fucking adorable. And I fucking, I cannot say enough things about this movie. It's actually like a lot of fun. It's so good. Anyway, so metafiction and also um, magical realism is also a uh, sort of often, but not always a site of political critique. Nice. We're going to get a lot into the political critique today because we're talking about banana republics eventually once we get there. Anyway, uh, the term was originally coined in the 1920s in Germany uh, in reference to sort of surrealist art uh, by a man named Franz Rowe. But Latin American writers in the early 20th century um, started to adopt this as a term, including um, a Cuban writer named Alejo Carpentier. It was sort of a similar term, lo real maravilloso, which is like the marvelous real, basically. Hmm. It was just related. But it really was was adopted and really took off and flourished in Latin America, sort of starting in the late ni- 1940s, but really, really flourishing and becoming super popular and well-known during the boom period of Latin American literature, which is like the 1960s and 70s. Um, and that's when 100 Years of Solitude was written in 1967. And this is sort of the... I would say probably most famous example of magical realism. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I yeah. think this, I'm going to call it for 100 Years of Solitude. I think this is probably the most famous. I feel like you going up in pitch was uh, that reticence to make that claim. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, the authorial reticence or whatever. <laughs> that No, that was me feeling fucking Tolkien with the English departments with their pistols loose in their holsters. I was like, here, they're coming for me. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Magical realism is often tied to like postmodernist and postcolonial literature. Postmodernism being characterized by like skepticism around existing hierarchical structures and political ideologies Mm -hmm. and stuff. Postmodernist literature is also often really self-referential and like self-conscious, including like the role of the author and the context of like historical context and cultural context in which the books are written. Postcolonial literature is more or less what it sounds like. It's literature that comes in the wake of or in reaction to colonialism. It often explores themes of like subjugation um, or rejection of or resistance to uh, colonization and colonizer culture, that kind of thing. This is where I'm going to put in a big, big caveat. I've written in my notes caveat with a large capital letters. Magical realism is a term that's like generally accepted, has been generally accepted by Latin American writers about their own writing and has sort of been 
like it's it's a genre that really really took off and has roots in that area of the world and like i said in the 1960s and 70s particularly the term magical realism often gets applied more broadly by western audiences and like colonizer audiences to post-colonial literature like all the time uh, who are like ooh this is okay. like fancy and magical Oh, was was saying comic books are like magical realism kind of doing that then? My bad. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I think she's talking about like people applying it to other Latin American uh, authors' okay. works. Got it. When that is not like their intention. Yeah, that and in particular also applying it to other parts of the world that have been colonized that have these like rich post-colonial traditions mm-hmm. um, that includes some sort of like what Western audiences are going to call magical realism, but really like a lot of writers from these parts of the world are like, no, nah, man, that's uh, that's not my genre. This is just how I tell stories. This is just how I write. Right. Western audiences are like, ooh, fancy, magical, exotic. Does this happen, I guess, a lot, like, if, like, comparing between, like, like South American literature to, like, I don't know, like, Haitian literature or anything from, like, the West Indies? Where yes. it's like, okay. It's like, oh, like, we're going to take brown people, black people. It's like, you're all, you're all magical. We, we can just <laughs> throw this label on all of you. Yes. And because of the, I mean, the Caribbean is a little more of a gray area because of its proximity to sure. and like relationship with uh, Latin America in general. Mm-hmm. But like, especially in like South Asia, a lot of Indian writers get uh, characterized as magical realist authors and, you know, other parts of South Asia in particular. And they're mm-hmm. like, mm, no, I actually, have <laughs> <laughs> I have a quote from Arundhati Roy, she's the author of The God of Small Things. Um, in a 1997 interview, she says, But then I don't understand when readers assume that Indian writers are magical realists, and suddenly I'm a quote-unquote magical realist just because Salman Rushdie or other Indian writers are magical realists. It's not me, the writer, creating the magical realism. No, what I'm writing is what the characters are experiencing. What the reader is reading is the character's own perceptions. Those images are driven by the characters. It's never me invoking magic. This is realism, actually, that I'm writing. So basically, she's taking issue with the idea that, like, because Western audiences don't understand the way her characters are experiencing things, doesn't mean they can just be like, aha, magic. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's like a looking at things from this perspective of like, oh, it's exotic and I don't really get it. So it has to be this because it is uh, like a narrative framing and like a style of writing that I think is like right. weird. Mm-hmm. So it has to be magical. Anything realism. outside of that mainstream, it's like, okay, exotic, magical. I'm going to put you in your box because I don't know how right. to interpret this. Yeah, exactly. Or like equating it and being like, oh, well, Salman Rushdie wrote one. Well, that has to mean that all these <laughs> Indian writers definitely are doing magical how? realism. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Salman Rushdie also cited as a magical realist author, one of my favorite authors. Yes, a douchebag. I know. Uh, but he also rejects the magical realist designation. So I feel like this would be akin to like knowing someone from like a country and then asking them if they know someone in that entire country because they're just from there. Like, oh, you must know blah 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 blah. Because <laughs> yeah, in the in the nation of India, <laughs> famously small and well connected. Yeah, seriously. So yeah, I I just wanted to throw that in here. I wanted to throw that in here because us. Including this on our like speculative fiction podcast mm-hmm. is a l- a little bit like yeah I guess it wouldn't really be borderline. necessarily accurate to call it speculative fiction yeah. so much as just fiction yeah. it, it it sort of depends on what you mean by speculative fiction and also like I said a lot of Latin American writers do accept this as a designation it is like a literary tradition that's largely from that area so I don't feel as weird about it like we're not talking magical realism and, and Salman Rushdie but. 
I just wanted to put that in there as like a the more you know kind of thing. Um, so this is borderline speculative fiction, but it's, you know, uh, it's good enough. <laughs> also, it's rad. We are not coming from some like place of superiority or like ultimate knowledge. Like this is all just our opinion. <laughs> yes. I'm just talking about it. Just shooting the shit, you as know? Experts. <laughs> <laughs> as experts. As experts. As experts. Anyway, so yeah, 100 Years of Solitude. That's that's the specific one we're going to talk about. Um, yes. This is a book written in 1967 by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, he's a really famous dude. He also wrote uh, Chronicle of a Death Foretold. Love in the Time of Cholera. Love in the Time of Cholera, yes. Yes, yes, I yes. I discovered this recently. He's Colombian, right? Yes, he's Colombian. Um, and we're going to sort of do tie-ins to Colombian history when we're looking at this. He started out as a journalist, um, but that was sort of controversial, so it led him to flee the country eventually. Um, he's sort of a leftist and liberal. And A Hundred Years of Solitude is about the Buendia family uh, and mm-hmm. the town of Macondo. Which is fictional? Fictional town of Macondo, mm, yes. Did he have to write the book outside of Columbia? Because you said he left because of whatever reasons. Was, was he able to actually write it while he was there? Or did he have to kind of like leave because of whatever work he did as like a journalist, which basically, I guess, assuming didn't make him safe or he wasn't able to stay because of his own safety. I said it was first published in, in Buenos Aires. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Yeah, he, he would have been writing this in exile. Got it. Self-imposed exile, I guess, which also is exile, which, oof, I'll get into exile one day, but I'm not going to get distracted by that right now. Right now, I'm going to tell you about the Buendia family and the town of Macondo. When you open the book, A Hundred Years of Solitude, there's like a immediately a family tree where you will notice that like many generations of the Buendias have like the same name in sort of different iteration, iterations. Mm-hmm. So you've got like many Jose Arcadios and many Aurelianos and like, yeah, many different uh, iterations of these same names over the generations. Is that meant to like allude to these people living like the same lives generation after generation? It's like, oh, we're basically like kind of not trapped but like our existence is kind of cyclical this may be a reach yes, i don't know essentially okay. oh it's okay. it's not like the battle star like all of this has happened before all of this will happen again mm-hmm. but it is sure. about the sort of cyclical nature of inescapable and or self-inflicted misfortune sure <laughs> yeah well i guess it is called a hundred years of solitude so that kind of checks out right <laughs> yes the town exists for a hundred years um it's founded by the Original, oh God, is it Jose Arcadio? Yes, he's the first guy. <laughs> the, the Aurelianos come later, but yes, it's founded by uh, Jose Arcadio Windia, and a uh, hundred years later, it dissolves. Like I said, when uh, Aureliano reads the book and uh, it disappears, disintegrates the town. Whoa. Disintegrates the town, yes. Yikes. But yeah, eventually, the uh, town of Macondo is originally supposed to be like a utopia, but it's eventually exposed to the outside world. One of the Aurelianos fights in the Civil War, and then an American fruit company shows up and establishes a banana plantation. There's a massacre by the Colombian army, and one of the Jose Arcadios survives, and the town refuses to believe it happens, and the town sort of falls into disrepair, uh, disrepair and uh, then disintegrates, essentially. That's extremely bleak. Yeah. It is extremely bleak. The Macondo, the town of Macondo, the downfall basically basically starts with the arrival of the outside world. Is the idea? Yeah. Random question is: Is it common knowledge that like banana republics kind of have this 
negative history of like adding to the destabilization of like certain regions. I don't know. You tell me. I'm well, I'm, one, I'm I'm worried, I'm curious only because there's like a whole clothing line called Banana Republic, and that just seems kind oh of god. like irresponsible. Oh yeah, I forgot that existed. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, I would say that it's not super common because I feel like I didn't learn about U.S. backed and CIA backed destabilization yeah. of Latin American and Central American countries until after I was in school. I was an adult when like that or first guess, became like, like yeah when I was like in college. But I wasn't taking history classes in college. Like, that was a thing I found out separately. Mm. And that wasn't a thing I found out when I was, like, in high school, for example. And they were just like, oh, yeah, like, you know, they were communists. So the U.S. helped out kind of thing versus, like, Mm -hmm. the reality of, like, the United States and the CIA-backed fascist regimes. Yeah. And and everybody takes, like, Latin American history. Like, it is, like, a part of coursework. And it just feels like this is not- is I don't. I, I don't know. I feel like I. I learned, don't know about everybody. I feel like I learned some Latin American. I actually had three separate years of Texas history, <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't really have like a lot of time for Latin American history because we were just learning about Texas over and over and over again. Yeah, there's no tie-ins to Latin American history in Texas. Okay. Well, <laughs> just got the Six Flags a million fucking times. By the way, guys, if you don't know, Six Flags is named after Texas, which was under Six Flags. Fantastic. Wow. Did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know how common this kind of knowledge is. We're not going to be talking as much about like 60s and 70s type stuff, but we are going to be talking about Banana Republics today. And when we are done, you will never shop there again, I hope, or I don't care what you do, I guess. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism. First of all, I'm too poor for Banana Republic. Yeah, I don't shop at Banana Republic. First of all, I can only shop at its poor sister store, Old Navy. <laughs> <laughs> Another really, really great name for a store. <laughs> Man, Target all the way. You gotta love it. Anyway, we're gonna talk about the United Fruit Company's presence in Latin America and how 100 Years of Solitude like ties this in as a political critique. There is a paper called Struggling Against the Injustice, the Historical Context and Social Justice in Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude by Abram L. Henry at the University of Minnesota Morris. And this person really well organized all of the parallels. So I'm going to talk a lot about stuff from his paper. That's awesome. Meticulous. You love to see it. Perfect. Yes. Yes. I was like, okay, here we go. Here we go. And then (laughs) uh, this person really, really laid it out. So um, thank you. Abram L. Henry, uh, you've done me a great service. Shout out. You did it. 100 Years of Solitude, by its cyclical nature and by its sort of surrealist nature, can be hard to like flip through looking for a thing. (laughs) Yes, I was trying to read through some stuff and I got extremely confused pretty much immediately because of the name repetition. And then from there, it was like all fucking over. (laughs) It really, it's an experience. I feel like you can't. But as like, I guess like as you're reading the story, is it sequential or you're just moving through time throughout this entire book like over that you're looking at the entire hundred years but as like an ensemble it's sort of sequential okay it doesn't feel sequential because they all have the same name (laughs) (laughs) that's fair yeah i guess maybe like also like the environment like if nothing's like changing if there's just like constantly war it's just like it, it feels like i'm with the same person and i guess that's like maybe part of the book there's not constantly war. oh well it sounds like it was a utopia and then there was some oh, stuff oh got it 
it's fine until uh, Apollinar Moscote shows up. Uh, he's the first to arrive from the outside world, so the first to sort of disrupt this utopia. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an official sent by the government of Colombia, and he basically, he sort of rolls up and demands that the founder of the town paint his house blue to, quote unquote, celebrate the anniversary of independence. Uh, and okay. he sort of, th- he threatens violence when Jose Arcadio uh, protests. So that's that's the arrival of the outside world, rolls up. Leader of the town, buddy, paint your house blue. No, I don't want to. Uh, and then he threatens him with violence. Yikes. Damn. So he's a pretty clear symbol of the rich and powerful class in Colombia. So Apolinar shows up and a bunch of armed capitalists show up and take up residence in Macondo to support him. And this is a reflection of the sort of two Colombias of the early 20th century. Um, one that's sort of politically and economically controlling the country. Then the like lower disenfranchised class. Basically, we're looking at here a capitalism, in, 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 as Abram L. Henry puts it, in a advanced stage of disintegration. He's saying the cap- capitalism's dissolving or disintegrating in Colombia right now, or like capitalism's causing like the disintegration of this society? I think more the latter. Got it. There is a civil war in 100 Years of Solitude that, that mirrors the War of a Thousand Days in Colombian history. Uh, this is from like 1899 to 1902. This started with like liberals call for insurrection against a series of fraudulent elections. It left at least 100,000 dead in a country of about 3 million people at the time. Oh my God. Jeez. According to historian Marshall Eakin, this is like the most violent war in South America up until that point. This War of a Thousand Days was the result of years of corruption and dictatorship and oligarchy and violence in Colombia. But yeah, as I said, it's based off this uh, series of fraudulent elections, which uh, Don Apolinar, the guy who I was just talking about, does this in 100 Years of Solitude. He has like a ballot box that he seals with a stamp that has a signature on it. Later, he orders one of the Aurelianos to break the seal and like count the votes and then take out the ones that are against him and then reseal it. So it's sort of an obvious overt critique to election fraud Mm -hmm. and uh, corruption. The insurrection in the real world, like the Civil War, was mostly in writing sort of and I don't know, by word of mouth at first, but then eventually spread to real fighting. Um, And the same thing happens in Macondo. Um, The insurrection is led by Colonel Aureliano Buendia for what happened with the votes. Apolinar has already confiscated most of the town's weapons at this point because he, like, knew that this was going to be a problem. He knew that his fraudulent bullshit was going to be a problem? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Sure. Yeah, Yeah, no, I mean, it checks out. Like, what else are you going to do except take away the weapons, right? Right. In both reality and in the book, the liberal militias suffer, like, ongoing defeats and have to given to the conservatives eventually. Mm. Colonel Buendia signs a treaty that ends the uprisings because he suffers defeat after defeat and really has no other choice um, because his people are being killed all the time. And this is based on real events. The other thing that we need to talk about in, in sort of talking about the strife in Macondo is banana republics. Buckle up. We're going we're gonna to take a detour to Central America real quick because that's... Um, sort of more applicable, and then we'll yeah. head back south. So Banana Republic is a term coined by the author O. Henry in 1904. O. Henry's the gift of the Magi dude. Okay. Uh, that I do remember reading it in school. It's like, a, it's a short story. It's the one where like the woman cuts off her hair to buy a chain for the watch and the guy sells his watch uh-huh. to buy his wife a comb. 
I did not read books, apparently. <laughs> I apparently didn't fucking read when I was, like, in school. Basically, it's about self-sacrifice and showing love, and that's what's more important than the actual gift itself or whatever. Okay, sure. Um, <laughs> and anyway, O'Henry lived in uh, Honduras for a while, and he coined the term when he was down there. Basically, banana republics. At the end of the 19th century, Americans were like, okay, it's hard to grow banana bananas here in America. Let's import them from Central America. <laughs> it's too cold here. Sure. Yeah. And companies like the United Fruit Company, Cuyamel, these are like ancestors of Chiquita. So basically, the end of the 19th century, these companies start moving to Central America and building infrastructure um, in exchange for just absolute fuck tons of land. So they end up owning huge, huge parts of- Like the country? Yeah. And they get these- This gives them, like, because of their infrastructure building, this also gives them ties to the governments. Like, the leader of Cuyamel, when they first moved to Honduras, was, like, really heavily involved in politics. The company, like, supplied weapons in a 1911 coup to support a Cuyamel-friendly president. That's sort of the vibe. I want to get into, in particular, the United Fruit Companies in Guatemala, because the United Fr Fruit Company is also involved in the sort of real-world parallel to the one that's in 100 Years of Solitude, and mm -hmm. because this is a really fucked up thing, and I want everybody to know about it, because it's fucked up. <laughs> Fair. And also the whole, like, concept of, like, giving groups of people uh, cents on the dollar for resources or, like, land is just classic imperialism and racism this is just how it's done yeah and also <laughs> it like honestly makes a lot of in the same way that like people throwing away around the word like witch hunt right now in a context that is completely devoid of its like actual yeah. like misogynistic and like homophobic origins mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now people using like banana republic all fucking willy-nilly as if that doesn't have like a very specific connotation of yeah. Governments that are impacted by these practices of like exportation of a single yeah. thing that like yeah. completely destabilizes the country. It's also the whole like culture of that like clothing line because it is very like upper class. Like it's meant to be like reflecting of like wealth. And, and so it's like as the like, if you're referring to the Banana Republic, they're like, you are like you're living the benefits of like the exploitation of Banana Republic. So, like, this is what you dressed at. That is really crazy that they would name their, like, high-end yeah. version of their clothing Banana Republic. <laughs> That's, like, psychotic. Yes. I think throwing a word... I've been seeing people refer to the U.S. as a Banana Republic recently. Oh, yeah. So the people have been referring to the U.S. as a Banana Republic because a lot of... Because these, like, far-right people that are like, oh, actually, the election was stolen, and now elections don't matter. It's a Banana Republic. Okay. Wow, really? Okay. Dude, oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Let me talk through this example so that we can see how stupid it is exactly. <laughs> yeah. Please elaborate. The United Fruit Company in Guatemala, 1899. There's a dictator, Manuel Estrada Cabrera, who United Fruit Company comes in and takes control of like the railroads and shipping. They work with the dictator. Did you think they were going to do good stuff? They weren't. Wait, you mean this like company that's <laughs> trying to make money is not going to work with like the good people? What? <laughs> they work with the dictator. Uh, the government hires them to manage the country's National Postal Service, railroads, oh, shipping. Man. The United Fruit Company eventually gets control of 42% of the land in the country. Oh, my God. They're not paying import duties. They own Guatemala's largest shipping port. They are tax exempt. 
77% of Guatemalan exports go straight to the U.S., and 65% of imports are from the U.S., and they own the telegraphs and the telephones and basically all the railroads. Dude, I know this is like history, but when we think about how like manufacturing basically does not exist in the United States and it's done in other places like Central and South America and how the wealth distribution is so skewed in one direction. And it's weird because we don't make anything here. We can't grow anything here, but somehow I can go get bananas for 49 cents a pound. I mean, somehow (laughs) by taking over, literally taking over another country in order to force it to operate not as a country, but as an extension of a company for another country's personal gain. Yeah, right. That's the case by 1944 when the Guatemalan Revolution appoints uh, Juan Jose uh, Arevalo. Sorry, stumbled through that one. He's like appointed by the revolution in sort of a democratic process, and he's democratically succeeded by Jacobo Arbenz. Arbenz makes a huge mistake, which is opposing the United Fruit Company. God forbid. Uh He buys back a bunch of land from them. And then Arbenz was like, actually, you know what? In the interest of democracy, I'm going to allow communists to vote. Oh no, the critical <laughs> era of letting communists do something. Wait, you're going to you're going to let everybody have access to voting? Like all citizens? Like everybody actually gets to say? Mm, that seems suspicious. I don't know, man. I don't think that's how democracy is supposed to work. I think only certain people are supposed to be allowed, allowed to vote and everybody else has to prove that they can. Um someone called the CIA? Okay, wait. No, we're not calling the CIA yet. Hang on. Oh, not yet. Got it. Not yet. Yeah, so he decided to let the communists vote. There were not that many communists in Guatemala at the time, maybe like around, I saw an estimate of like 4,000-ish. And the United Fruit Company was like, ha ha, now he has done something for communism. Now we can have our revenge. So they go to Eisenhower and they're like, hey, buddy, we hate this guy. And Eisenhower's like, "Mm, I feel like it would look kind of bad to intervene. In a democratically elected process? (laughs) Yes. I mean, there are allies and like it would look kind of bad. And I did say I was going to spend less money on the Cold War. I don't know. I don't want anybody to know about this. So let's get the CIA in it. So the CIA is like, heck yeah, we can do this without anybody knowing. Um, This is a covert operation from the CIA called PB Success to overthrow Arbenz. And in 1954, they, the CIA invades Guatemala with 150 men. They bomb parts of Guatemala City. Um, they have spies in the military and use scare tactics to undermine Arbenz. So that's fucked up. And then Arbenz doesn't know that this is CIA. So he fucking calls up Eisenhower and is like, hey, Eisenhower, please help. I'm having trouble. We are allies. Theoretically. Allegedly. Obviously, that's not what happened. He didn't help. And, uh... Yeah, the CIA replaces Arbenz with a military dictator, Carlos Castillo Armas, um, and they call him the Liberator of Guatemala. Oh, my God. What a great mm-hmm. name. Uh, sorry, what year was this again? Uh, 54. This is like 1954, and it seems like very similar tactics are used about like 14, 15 years later to basically destabilize like Black Panther Party and other civil rights groups in the United States right when they were about to like really have some impact. Oh, you mean like the known interference <laughs> of like the FBI, for example? Like Pro. I mean, it's all bad, right? But this is like, I don't know, like truly overthrowing an entire government. Does something similar happen in Colombia? No, I just wanted to tell you about how much the United Fruit Company sucked. Got it. And I wanted to talk to you about Banana Republics more broadly because the Banana Republic thing does factor into 100 Years of Solitude. Got it, got it, got it. 
Anyway, the United Fruit Company in Colombia, in the beginning of the 20th century, they were dominating the Caribbean coast. um, And basically, they had a bunch of Colombian workers on uh, on their vast tracts of land that they had. um, And they started paying Colombian workers uh, in the form of scripts, which could only be used at United Fruit Company stores. What? Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. This is, they used to pay for slaves with things called Manila that literally had no real Mm -hmm. value. It's just, it's- Really? Yes. And this is like why, like, if you think about like, I mean, slavery is like dark and terrible, but like you would think that if you were a country that sold most of the slaves, you would have had some like historical wealth, but not if the people buying your slaves are giving you worthless currency. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I didn't even think about that. It's just, we, we repeat things throughout history. It, it's it's hilarious. The banana company that moves to Macondo is also sort of follows this model. They also start paying their workers in scripts. Mm-hmm. They tell the company doctors, the company doctors rather, are trying not to waste money. And they like make everybody line up um, facing the dispensary and a nurse will put copper, a copper colored pill on their tongues, quote unquote, whether they had malaria or constipation. So basically they're like faking healthcare. Yeah. Jose Arcadio Segundo is a foreman for the banana fruit company, but he decides to rebel and lead demonstrations. This is this is one of the hundred years of solitude, guys. Um, he's jailed for this. And then Macondo and the Buendias go on strike. The fruit goes bad. The trains are empty. The town is just like nobody's doing anything. And the Colombian government sends the army to Macondo. And the, this all actually happens in Colombia as well. So in the actual Colombian banana zone, there are these huge strikes, um, and they're dispersed by military operations. Um, mm-hmm. In 1928, in Cienega, um, like 25,000 workers went on strike, um, and that led to the Banana Massacre. Okay. Whoa. And... What is that? So that sounds very bad. The Banana Massacre um, is the result of a strike that became that began on October 6th, 1928, a United Fruit Company workers went on strike for dignified working conditions. They had nine demands, including things like six-day work weeks, insurance, um, abolition of company stores and, like, getting paid in coupons rather than in money. I'm sorry. Did, I, I have to go back. Did you say six-day work weeks? That yes. was one of the apparently unreasonable demands? Yes. They were working, oh like, 10-hour days, seven days yeah. a week. Okay. They're, one of the workers who was on strike said that they basically describing the strike as being like todos eramos jefes, like we were all in charge. So that was sort mm-hmm. of the mentality there. There wasn't, it was like a pretty egalitarian movement. So they're on strike for two months. General Carlos Cortes Vargas is sent to Cienega to like keep an eye on things. And then after two months, um, like between the 5th and 6th of December, uh, Vargas is, receives a telegram with decree number one. And this is basically the government officially declaring a state of siege for Cienega, like where the workers are on strike. Then they are ordered to massacre the workers. There's a huge massacre in the plaza of Cienega with like the soldiers have machine guns and sort of open fire. In the morning, there were nine bodies left in the plaza to sort of mirror the nine demands of the workers. Oh, my God. That's not how many people were killed. There's a wide, wide range of estimates. Um, There are witnesses who say that there were like trucks 
carrying bodies away to the sea, but there are also rumors of like mass graves. Um, General Cortes Vargas, he said there were 47 deaths, but in a um, correspondence from the uh, American embassy to the Secretary of State, it says... I have the honor to report that the Bogota representative of the United Fruit Company told me yesterday that the total number of strikers killed by the Colombian military exceeded 1,000. And like in the book, is this is the massacre in the book pretty similar to what happened, like the actual banana massacre? Yes. It, honestly, this is the part of the book that is m- most non-fictional. Mm-hmm. Marquez includes some quotations that are pretty much word for word what Vargas said that he said, the the general. And he also names the decree pretty much the exact same name as the actual decree that came through to put the place under siege and massacre them. He, in the book, Marquez puts the death count at 3,000. Basically, what he does in terms of the critique here is to emphasize that, like, Jose Arcadio Segundo can't get anyone to believe that it happened. And I've got a quote from the book here. The the official version repeated a thousand times and mangled out all over the country by every means of communication the government found at hand was finally accepted. There were no dead. The satisfied workers had gone back home to their families and the banana company was suspending all activity until the rain stopped. He can't get anyone to believe that anything happened or that anyone was dead. He can't find proof. And basically, Marquez goes on to say, nothing has happened in Macondo. Nothing has ever happened and nothing will ever happen. This is a happy town. In this way, they were finally able to wipe out the union leaders. This is very chilling. Wow. Yes. So this is the way that he critiques the United Fruit Company's role in Colombia by providing a, a pretty much an exact parallel of the banana massacre. And really, there aren't really records of this, right? Like when I was researching it, I was like, well, it might be 47 or it might be 2000 or it might be this. And like, there's just like everything just gets dumped into the sea and a race. And Pablo Neruda actually has a really interesting poem called, I think it's just called The United Fruit Company, um, that is about that sort of dumping of bodies into the sea, although his is specifically a critique of the treatment of indigenous people. Damn. More more history that you don't really learn about. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sad because it's like, it's not surprising, but it also, I don't know. It's like, so horrible. I'm perusing the Wikipedia page on the Banana Massacre. So at the time of this, uh, Frank B. Kellogg was the Secretary of State um, working under uh, Calvin Coolidge. I don't know like how much the Secretary of State is, was in, would be involved in something like this, but they are kind of like, who represents the United States out in the world outside of our borders? And he got a Nobel Peace Prize. Oh my god, are you <laughs> he, fucking serious? Yeah, um, he was awarded the prize the year after this all went down, actually, so... I really do wonder how much of that is known to state officials. Like, well, he's the guy who received this telegram that I was talking about. That's what I'm saying. But like, did he like really know what was happening or? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I don't want to give um, like, I don't want to give credit where credit is not due. I don't know how much of an uproar or actual attempt to stop this kind of behavior there would have been if this had been public. But this isn't something that was like signed off on by Congress, right? This is some like backdoor underground shit. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm I'm not trying to give Congress more credit than they deserve for stopping atrocities across the world, but like I you know, it is weird to like you don't know who knows what and you just know that we this guy got a telegram and then the next year he got a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Anyway, this leads me to my final point, which is about magical realism as resistance. 
In their essay, uh, Empowering the Oppressed in 20th Century Literature Through Magical Realism, Lindsay Oberhausen says, um, while some magical occurrences are simply the physical manifestation of some sort of ideological subjugation or oppression, other magical occurrences serve as a means of relieving these subalterns of their metaphorical or literal chains. Hmm. So the idea here is that, like, by things not being real, they're able to find, like, a release or a resistance to things that would otherwise bind them in the same way that, like, reality binds you, basically. It seems like a way of processing trauma and grief that, I don't know, like, I know, like, a lot of, like, visual artists do this, right? Like, representations of their own trauma and hurt and stuff like that in a way that helps them process it and, like, move on from it. Like, weird plug, but related, what I I feel like it's really dimensional realism is... So the album's called Drogus Wave by Lupe Fiasco. And like some of the like uh, basically the whole like album is kind of about this like group of slaves that like fell off of a slave ship, but like through whatever means became like mer people and like kind of created oh, this culture under like the water. Okay, so that's some magical yeah. realist shit right wow. there. And so like yeah, and so like they're like talking about like these scenes of them like taking down slave ships as they're coming through wherever they crashed. And, like, everybody on the ships are freaking out, but then they tell, like, all the slaves, they just whisper, breathe, and then, like, on to the next song. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Great album. That's highly recommended. Fucking sick. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea, is that, like, this, and that's sort of part of this person's thesis is also, like, that's why this keeps happening as, like, like a post-colonial thing, is that it is that kind of resistance to systematic oppression Mm -hmm. and this sort of, like, yeah, a way to fight back. Yeah. So, Yeah. Uh, that's that's it. That's my expert opinion. The CIA is fucked up. That's my expert opinion. Yeah, God. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to In My Expert Opinion. Please remember to rate and subscribe. We'd also be grateful if you'd leave a review with your expert opinion on why this podcast is rad. Five-star reviews will get a shout-out on the podcast. Pretty big deal, if you ask me. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ExpertOpsPod, or email inmyexpertopinion at gmail.com. Later, nerds! <laughs>